Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and this week we're looking at how access to cash and plans for a central bank digital currency, known as a CBDC, have fueled new privacy concerns. My guests are the Tory MP Marcus Fish, who chairs the all-party parliamentary group on CBDCs, and Silky Carlo, director of the campaign group Big Brother Watch, and making his podcast debut is my colleague and poll home political reporter, Tom Scotson. So I'm going to start with you, Tom. Have you been writing about CBDCs for us on, on Poll Home? Just first of all, explain what they are and kind of how they came about. So a CBDC, so a central bank digital currency, so if it's going to be introduced, is a new form of sterling, which it would be provided and supplied by the Bank of England. So it would mark quite a big shift away from how money works in the current system. So a lot of the time now, what happens is that we have access and we work with retail banks. So if you think about banks obviously on the high street, your NatWest, your Santander, this kind of cuts out that middleman, that big chain, and it makes the, the citizen, the person, with the access to the central banks of the Bank of England. And I think the big difference is, and I think the reason that it's kind of come in to the conversation more recently and what we've seen is that obviously cryptocurrencies over the last five, ten years have started to really come up in prevalence. More people are using them, particularly in the West and all over the world, of course. And what's happened now, I think, with central banks is they've seen these crypto assets, these cryptocurrencies. And of course, what's happened there is they are known for being very volatile. Of course, they work in markets that are more unregulated as such. And of course, therefore, this is more private money. This is away from the state issuing money. I think what happens now is what uh, central banks have seen with CBDCs. If they thought, hold on, if we create a new currency as such that is supplied and issued by us, this could be more stable than more cryptocurrencies that are supplied by private markets. And also as well, it's a big point here is that, of course, that if more and more people are using private money through cryptocurrencies, then therefore, if that's a larger and larger section over time, then if something goes wrong, maybe in the financial market, then central banks have less control over what happens with the money that's issued by them. So what's happened now, of course, is that this is a big project done in partnership at the moment in the UK by uh, the central bank, which is, of course, the Bank of England, in partnership with the Treasury. And I think, of course, that what they kind of aim to be is that they'll be less volatile than uh, cryptocurrencies and crypto assets and therefore be issued and supplied by the central bank. Mm. Interesting, Marcus. So there's this kind of Bitcoin idea. You obviously chair the APPG on this. How did you first become involved or interested in, in CBDCs? Yeah, so I'm I'm chairman of the APPG, the all-party parliamentary group that is for central bank and digital currency, which sort of includes both the central bank issued ideas for issuance, but also the stable coins, which are digital assets that are denominated in what's known as fiat currencies, i.e. the ones that the central banks currently create, along with governments. I wanted to be the chairman of that because I have sort of made it my business to understand the innovation that's going on in the digital asset world, and I feel that I do understand it fairly well now, and um, I don't want CBDC in the UK to be taken in the wrong direction. Yeah, I don't want it to go in the Chinese direction of social credit and surveillance and censorship, and it becoming a panopticon for the for the enslavement of humans. And frankly, the UK should be leading the world and giving it something that is a tool to promote human freedom rather than the other direction. This is the country in the modern world which established through the uh, common law and many difficult times over the last millennium the 
establishment of property rights, privacy rights, personal rights of one kind or another. And it would be criminal for this generation to turn its back on those rights. We need a central bank digital currency, if there is one, that is a perfect analogue of the current bearer cash, yeah. which is available with the pound in your pocket. If it doesn't do that, we shouldn't be doing it. Mm. Yeah, Silky, then just explain what some of the, expand maybe on some of those kind of concerns, privacy issues that the Marcus was talking about there around CBDCs and, and what have you kind of made of the kind of exploratory work that the Bank of England and the Treasury have done on, on Bitcoin, which would be the British uh, CBDC so far? Well, we call it SpyCoin <laughs> right. um, because we think it's inevitable that the current plans for a British CBDC would be underpinned by the kind of surveillance, intrusion, potentially control that Marcus is quite rightly warning about. Because of the legal environment in which we already live, already there's extensive financial surveillance because of anti money laundering regulations, counter-terror financing rules, investigatory powers. The digital space is incredibly surveilled. Increasingly, we're seeing censorship too. And that's not just by states, but also in the private sector. So as people are increasingly moving towards digital payment systems like PayPal, we've seen PayPal censor people in recent years. We've even seen crowdfunder websites censoring people for lawful and frankly legitimate campaigns on on occasion. So a CBDC will enter the British landscape into a context of extensive surveillance laws. So that's the backdrop to to the problem. It it could never be as anonymous as cash. And I think that's a problem. I completely agree. Like Big Brother Watch has no principled objection to a CBDC per se. And if it could be the analogue to cash, why not? But how you do that technically is very, very difficult. It's very difficult to see how that could happen. Already in government at the moment, there is a shift towards digital ID. A new digital identity system is being developed for access to government systems. A CBDC has to be underpinned by digital So you, you think those two things ID. would be... They so go in order, hand in, in order hand. To access that, you'd have to have the digital ID, so it'd be a way actually of bringing in a digital ID sort of almost through the back door in a sense to access your money you have to have a digital ID to you, go alongside you have it. to have digital identity of some form to have a CBDC attached to your person other concerns are about how like, if you look at where surveillance and financial control is starting now um, and where it's likely to play out with a CBDC would probably be in the welfare system would probably be with payments to migrants and in these kind of low rights environments where there is less attention paid and I think that's a real risk because then you, you could quite quickly see how exceptions would be made for programming and, and closely monitoring how people spend their money and that is a very very slippery slope. Mm. Tom you've written about this and, and you know Andrew Bailey, the Governor of Bank of England, the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt have said the rationale is to shore up trust in British money and that they've kind of ruled out using it to, to monitor people's spending. What's the kind of the the other side of the coin from from, from to use that, that word from the the government as to why this is necessary and kind of their trying to allay those concerns that, that Marcus and Silky have laid out? So there's a few things that the Bank of England and of course that the Treasury have kind of forward. One of them is supposed increased in speed and efficiency with payments. But I think a big one that we'll probably talk about as well is that the great access to those without a bank account. Now, at the moment, I think it's around 5% of people don't have bank accounts in the UK. And they think, therefore, that 
particularly bringing this about, this maybe this state, uh, the project, of course, uh, in, introduced by, of course, the central bank, is that if they can offer people the access uh, for a digital pound from the central bank, is therefore it will offer these people who don't have a bank account at the moment or who have been debanked in the process to have a lender of last resort. Because we all saw what happened over the summer, of course, that Nigel Farage had been, of course, debanked and there was a huge scandal over that and it took so much oxygen from the political debate over the first couple of weeks of parliamentary recess. And I think a lot of... It was a proper silly season story, that one, but yeah. It was a a perfect one. It really, of course, it drove the news agenda, uh, particularly for a certain amount of newspapers for a number of weeks. And I think there's an argument, therefore, that if retail banks stop offering access to people, particularly with the political opinions that they might not approve of, then therefore they can go to the, the central bank, they can work with them, and of course, therefore, they can spend money through that where it is issued, rather than going somewhere, particularly if they are a politically sensitive person. Mm. Can I raise a concern about that, though? Yeah, because of the problem with political debanking is is beyond just the decisions and the policies of, of retail banks. With regulations around politically exposed people, for example. Now, imagine how damaging it would be if you were debanked in the context of a CBDC under those regulations that that exist rather than private bank policies. And I think that is not only a likelihood, I think it's an inevitability. And it would be far more damaging to a person to be to be debanked by the central bank in a digital way that you can't contest, where you can't just go and withdraw Mm. than the example that we saw. Yeah, I just want to say something um, much depends on the design. So I've written a letter to the Prime Minister a week or two ago, which is essentially just trying to set up out uh, the idea that there really needs to be more work into the potential design of things like this. Because to come back to Tom's point, my understanding of the current work is that they are looking at issuing a CBDC only via essentially a thing called PIPs, which, which might be a retail bank, it might be other some sort of a registered entity but to come back to silky's point they would have the option not to bank a certain person not not to offer the cbdc to them for one reason or another and i think that that's really it doesn't innovate in any way beyond what we have at the moment which is digital money on our phones in our bank accounts people's money at the moment when they put it in the bank isn't theirs they just hold a liability of the bank to them. The bank owes them money, and if the bank goes down, then you're relying on the deposit insurance that the government provides, etc. But we already have digital payment rails, and just you know, calling it a central bank digital currency, which is the current technology plan, it isn't an innovation. It can only really be used to make it money that has to be spent by a certain date for example when you look at the detail of what was in project rosalind which is the the bank of england's work with the bis on this they have features in there which are which basically introduce the programmability primarily through locking up various parts of that deposit under certain conditions it can be released to you that's effectively a bit like a negative interest rate or basically saying 
that your ability to spend this money is conditional on X, Y, Z. Yeah, as I say, there's lots of countries, about 100 countries are exploring CBDCs and I think 11 so far have actually implemented them. You know, are there any that you looked at that you think that is an acceptable use use case for or, or are they all kind of going into this realms of programmable stuff that you find problematic? Yeah, so what, so what I have said is, you know, there are... There are public blockchain systems on which one could issue a central bank digital currency which has a stable value. It wouldn't take years to sort of do it. And you could use that as an actual unit of account, as a central bank issued digital currency, which could then interoperate with all of the other financial protocols and other innovations which are taking place in the digital asset space. You might, for example, be able to make a, make that money available in liquidity for lending and borrowing protocols for microfinance in parts of the world where that's really needed, where mm. you want to get money into more directly into people's hands rather than going through charities that might skim off 30, 50% of the money. There are lots of potential innovations that are there, but but you have to make the actual trusted unit a unit that can be interoperable and used anywhere and then to come back to the aml and and all of those sorts of obligations clearly people who use money just as people who use cash now can't use it for nefarious purposes otherwise they're breaking the law and there are lots of modern ways within those digital asset systems where you can prove identity prove provenance in ways that doesn't create a privacy problem if if you're prepared to use the modern approaches to things like what's called zero knowledge proofs where you're able to prove that you have a certain status without divulging all the information behind that so that so there are ways of doing it that make sense in the modern world but just having an account with the bank which is a centralized system which is something that they could switch off overnight, I don't think makes any sense at all. Yeah, Silky, the, the, um, the Austrian Central Bank government says what's missing is a convincing storyline, you know, that kind of they've obviously got a massive credibility problem with in lots of different countries, we'll perhaps go on to you know, America and there's lots of arguments against them there and, and criticism of them. Do you think there is a potential for a legal framework to be created to underpin a CBDC, certainly in the UK, that would allay some of those fears that people like you and others have? It's possible. And and certainly, I think what the right approach to all of this would be is to rather than take a kind of sneering approach to people's concerns and call them conspiracy theories. And we'll come on, we'll come on some of those in a bit. Yeah. Yeah. For people to be maligned, recognize that there's a trust problem. You had Ursula van der Leyen saying um, this isn't a big brother system. I think when you're at the point of selling a policy as saying it isn't a big brother system, then you know that you've got a problem. I think the better thing would be to recognize that there is a trust issue and for very good reason. This is, you know, ca- cash is something that is central to an individual's empowerment and their, the value that they hold in the society that they live. Putting in a centralised intermediary in that in this digital way is a step change. I don't think it should have been proposed or discussed without first addressing the trust issues and the privacy issues. We are at the point where I think we almost certainly need something like 
a digital bill of rights that potentially has the same kind of constitutional value that the Human Rights Act has, because Human Rights Act hasn't gone far enough in protecting people from some of the digital risks that we face. People are worried about CBDCs as they're worried about digital ID. And if it were, it's not enough to have in a consultation paper that hardly anyone knows about a few words about how we're not currently planning to make it programmable, but maybe some private companies will, and all this kind of confusion. If you actually had an ironclad right that said in the context of digital currency that it cannot be programmable and for that to have be recognized as having some kind of constitutional value then I think the conversation would be different but at the moment it's kind of being beaten over people's head and you're just being told if you don't trust it then there's something wrong with you and that's a very elitist approach to take. Mm. This next segment is brought to you by Mastercard. Whether it's protecting consumers from fraud or supporting small businesses, Mastercard's mission is to connect and power an inclusive digital economy that benefits everyone. Introducing Johan Gerber, Executive Vice President of Security and Cyber Innovation at Mastercard. Johan oversees Mastercard's product solution strategies for cybersecurity, financial crime, online credential management, and dispute resolution. So, firstly, Johan, can you just explain to us a little bit what the kind of the problem is that you guys are, are trying to to fix, which is the kind of real rise in online fraud that we've seen spurred on by the pandemic. In, in the UK, we saw computer misuse offences increase thirty seven percent last year compared with with pre pandemic stuff, and and ransomware around the world has gone up massively, around six hundred million recorded cases globally in, in twenty twenty one, triple that of of twenty nineteen. Well, Alan, well, thank you very much first of all for having us here today. You know, this is a topic that we are very passionate about. It impacts people's lives across the globe as a profound implication of people's lives, quite frankly, which is why this is so important for us to to look into and also to talk to your audience about today. And you mentioned some of the data points on the implications already going into online fraud and the importance of online fraud as part of the problem statement here. The pandemic had a profound impact on the world getting digitized. That has also an impact then on how fraud is committed. Now, to just come back to some of the numbers that you mentioned, 37% increase in what we refer to as computer misuse offenses in the UK, for instance. If you look at payment card fraud across the globe, more than two thirds of our fraud comes and originates from the online world. If you look at non-card fraud, so things like your bank account fraud, or that's commonly referred to as uh, authorized push payment fraud, you know these are peer-to-peer scams, those kind of things. That fraud type represents 57% of all fraud in the UK. More than two-thirds of that actually originates online as well. So online is a big part of the problem here. Uh, that digitization just makes it so easy for criminals to come after us uh, and to present the scams and to prevent these these offers that look too good to be true that we typically fall into. So that is a big part. The untold story often is the impact on individuals, retirees who loses their entire life savings, people whose lives are altered because they no longer have that that safety cushion of of a safety nest or a nest egg to cover uh, emergency expenses, relationships that are being ruined, and so forth and so forth. Those are the hard underside of this that, that we don't talk about often, but they are very real for people who get impacted by these by these scams. Yeah, I think we've all kind of known stories throughout the last few years of people being exploited by some of these. So so what are kind of the problems in the system, really, that, that criminals exploit? And what can consumers and, and, and banks do to try and mitigate some of those risks? Yeah, so Alan, look, this is part of the problem. It is it is so easy for them to get into doing these scams. So you've got first of all, you've got a low barrier to entry. It does not take the criminals much. It's not very expensive for them to launch these online scams or online frauds and ways to attack us. Um, so the, the entry entry to barrier is low. 
it's hard to find them. If you think about trying to prosecute a fraud like this, where a criminal may sit in country A, the victim in country B, money being transferred to country C and E, you can just see how the complexity of these things makes it hard to prosecute, which means, again, that the, the fear of, of, of retribution against them is not very high. So they will keep coming at you as much as they can because there's no fear of law enforcement really getting getting to them. That's another area. And then I think the biggest part of this is just we as humans, they play to our vulnerable side, they play to our emotions. They come with either an emergency that something has happened or something that you can buy that's, that, that sounds just so great that you really, really want. And we've seen this all the way from the scams where, you know, somebody's kid is, is stuck in a country and needs money to get out. We've seen manipulations where people believe their kids were being kidnapped and they had to pay a ransom. Yeah. We have seen places where people were using illnesses. For instance, we had a scenario where somebody's family was in hospital and they were called and say, look, we're here to deliver your wheelchair. You need to pay for this or we, we walk away. Those are the kind of things. So it, it, it speaks to that emotional side. And often what we see is when banks are trying to intervene here, the hardest part is to convince the consumer that they're actually being scammed right. because they truly believe what they, what they, what's happening here, that they're doing the right thing. And so you've got detection of the problem is what part of the problem, how easy it is for criminals to get in. But then really to convince the consumer that when you press pay and that money moves, uh, that that was the wrong thing to do is extremely hard sometimes. So consumer education, all those things are really big part of the problem here. Yeah, and that's really interesting. And I suppose that kind of leads me on to looking at you guys at MasterCard. So what exactly is it that the technology you guys have been developing does in, in helping you know tackle that kind of fraud rhythm, really? Let me, let me use an example uh, of the UK market where we've been doing this now for a good number sure. of years in collaboration with the banks. It started with a system that we refer to as our money mule tactical system, which is basically put in place to help the banks communicate suspected money mule accounts to each other so that we can, we can trace illicit funds. And you know, since 2018, we've traced more than 574,000 of these illicit transfers of money, helped the banks to understand it, and amounted to like something like 974 million pounds of fraudulent attempts. That's how we started. And we realized that in order to, to really combat this fraud, you need a couple of things. You need the banks to be able to collaborate amongst each other in a privacy-friendly way, you know, because there's a lot of restrictions around what data banks can communicate. And we can actually help that communication without putting any, anybody's privacy at danger and also to, to satisfy all the regulations, a big important part of the whole thing of what we're trying to do here. Then we started building our artificial intelligence applications on top of it, a system that we call our consumer fraud protection program. And here what we're doing is we're looking actually at the attributes of the transaction itself. We're looking at like more than 170 different data points on every transaction, trying to understand what is the likelihood that this is a scam. And it could include something like, you know, the, the account that is sending or receiving, what's the typical behavior that we expect from those accounts. So that's the kind of technology that we have. The ultimate purpose here is to allow technology to evaluate the data and then allow us to very quickly communicate between the banks. The first thing is you have to try to stop the consumer from actually doing the transaction. But once they hit send and that money moves, now we have to notify the receiving account to say, you may want to hold on to these accounts. Let's investigate this thing first. So the system basically that we've put in place comprises of three things. is the money mule component, the evaluation of the transaction, and then how do we communicate and allow the banks to communicate in a safe, secure and data privacy friendly way amongst each other to actually now prevent the money from leaving the system. Yeah, it's really interesting, Johan. I'm really kind of interested in the kind of the way that 
AI operates in this space. And you talked earlier about the kind of the, the consumer fraud risk solution. You know, what else can AI do in this kind of space and take it forward? And what kind of opportunities do you think AI represents in this sector to try and kind of cut down further on, on this kind of increased fraud that we're seeing? Yeah, look, uh, so first of all, you know, without AI, we'll be lost in this case, right? Because if you right. think about the problem here, it's a, it's a big data problem, right? So you have billions of transactions, quite frankly, that flows over the system. You need to find these thousands, hundreds of thousands, or maybe perhaps a few million transactions amongst that whole big bucket. So you've, you're sitting with a big data problem, you know, very large population of transactions, very small target that you're trying to, to trying to detect with as little as collateral impact as possible. Because just think about this, if we make the wrong decision and we prevent the consumer from sending money from point A to point B, thinking it's a fraud and it's not, that also has implications. So every time you're wrong, there's a real profound implication. So getting the AI right is, is, is very, very important. Without AI, your level of accuracy, the amount of data and the complexity of the problem that you can solve just, just is, is very, very different. So AI is a critical component for us. Like I explained to you, we have about 170 different data elements that gets evaluated in milliseconds every time a consumer is trying to do a transaction like that in the UK, for instance. So AI is a really important piece. The other piece is, if I look at the roadmap of where we want to go with this, if you start adding more complexity into the evaluation, what was the conditions under which you opened the account? Were we satisfied with the KYC and identifying that you truly are a customer? What devices are being used to do this transaction so we can bring device intelligence in? So that's where we are looking at taking the AI in the future, just enriching our data set, helping us to become more accurate, we've way more pinpointed, making sure that we do not impact a genuine consumer who's trying to do a genuine transaction. So. That complexity of all the additional data points is really something that AI is alone can, can solve for us. That's kind of how we see the future of this, this rolls out. And then not only using AI in identifying the transactions, but actually starting using AI in mitigating the fraud as well. So for instance, in our card networks, we are using AI to do detection, but as well as mitigation. So we will, for instance, if we believe or if our AI system believes that an ATM is, is under attack, it could actually be smart enough to decide, I'm just gonna throttle transactions down or it's a severe attack and I'll shut it down. So we actually have AI that can decide the severity of, of response in the event of an attack as well. So AI is, is being used for us, is detection, and that's the world has been well proven that that's a very good use case, but we're also moving into the mitigation of these attacks and how we use AI to decide to what extent do I wanna put friction into the process uh, to avoid these frauds from actually spreading. So it becomes a very interesting place of where AI can, that's the exciting part about this technology. We can actually give consumers more freedom. And back to our main discussion about CBDCs this week. Tom, you, you touched on it earlier with the, sort of the, the debanking stuff. And the other big part of this is, is access to cash. And we've seen, obviously, you know, towns where all the kind of high street banks have closed. So I think 15,000 cash machines removed past five years, two and a half thousand high street banks closed as well. How are those two, thoughts, two things related and that kind of access to cash relates to people's fears about CBDCs as well? Mm. So it's an interesting point, particularly with the access to cash. So this, of course, the project, the Digital Pound, is coming at the same time where actual people's use of cash has plummeted. Mm. I think over the last 10 years, it's gone from 20 billion pounds of transactions were used in cash around 2012, 2013 to around 6.3 billion. Now, of course, the pandemic exacerbated that. 
because of course people were going out less, going to retail, of course, less, and then spending less in person. But now as well, anecdotally, I think you can go on, you know, you walk to work now and you go to a coffee shop, you can either go, of course, after work to a bar, and there's less and less shops and of course bars and retail um, operations that are actually accepting cash less. Most now businesses really want you to pay with a Mm. debit card or a credit card. So at the same time, I think that, of course, central banks have woken up to this and thought, well, hold on, less people are using physical cash at the moment. More people are using debit cards and credit cards to pay for things. So therefore, we've got to come up now with a solution so we can shore up trust within the banking system. And I think that is definitely part of the answer, definitely the reason why people are pushing CBDCs further down the line to shore up trust within the pound and and the currency. Now, as, as you talk about, of course, the access to cash, this has been a huge problem and, and a political one that both the Tory party and Labour party have grappled with. And of course, that, you know, it's particularly older people that are more dependent on cash, mm. they've grown up with it. And therefore, if they're less and less high street banks, ATM machines that they can actually get cash from and use it, then of course, it's particularly problematic for a smaller group in society that can actually pay for things and of course go out and spend so it's an important one how those two line up at the moment yeah. well, it's interesting as well because the banks suggest that it's you know it's consumer driven but essentially there's kind of a bit of a feedback loop i saw uh, journalist brett scott rang about that when the bank closes down a branch it's harder for businesses to bank with cash so therefore they switch to digital only because that's easier for them but then of course it then you know, then less transactions are made with cash and it looks like it's it's being driven by consumers but actually they're not being given that choice so i wonder if you'd looked at that and what what you kind of made of that in relation to to cbdc's as well how that kind of those two things intersect yeah well i i would agree with that it's a huge issue in my constituency the lack of access to cash whenever a branch closes in a village or a, a smaller town it's a real issue there are many people who feel digitally excluded at the moment because they can't put money in parking meters anymore and mm. they, they might not have access to uh, digital means that One are One of the many 10 or so apps you have to use for, well, for exactly. parking. And that means that people are less willing to come into town centers and to patronize the bars and shops and and restaurants and things and that's one of the problems with our town centers at the moment so these have real social impacts and at the end of the day i mean humans have for millennia uh, wanted physical things that they can use as full and final settlement of financial transactions and other types of debt between each other and that is something that cash represents if it suddenly becomes a thing that is mediated, to go back to Silky, what Silky was saying, by intermediary banks, yeah. then that's a massive change in the human condition itself. What happens typically is that people under pressure find ways of doing that physical settlement between each other. That is why gold was used in the old days, because it was a proxy for a, uh, a sense of value. And people will go and find things that are real value. And at the end of the day, a pound from a, a bank is a promise, not a real value. Yeah. I think it makes sense. If you're going to try to think about the role of sterling as part of the base layer of the financial system, then, then, then you have to make it a, a true base layer that can be used in a completely fungible manner. So I, for example, would argue that if we're going to do that, then we should maybe think about tokenizing the reserves that the commercial banks currently hold with the Bank of England. That is your M0 monetary reserve. Cash is the other part of M0. And that could then be used as an international payment means 
you would drive much of the capital requirement out of the overnight clearing houses for international financial transactions. That's how to actually make the UK part of the financial revolution which can innovate and do interesting things it would be aside from all the privacy things and all the concerns it would just be a massive missed opportunity for the uk's financial services to be ahead of the curve yeah and to look at using a proper de- based digital money in an interesting way mm. so you, you talk about digital bill of rights you think that paying in cash perhaps could be made a legal right, do you think that it would need to be, you know, otherwise you kind of, the end to anonymous payments and stuff, do you think that that's something that needs to be looked at? Because, you know, there hasn't really been a referendum on, on ending cash, it's just sort of slowly happening effectively, isn't it? I think the best thing that people could do is vote with their feet in that regard and use it or lose it. Right. You know, if you want to protect the cash economy, start using cash. Of course, there there is there are the issues that Marcus outlined about how uh, inaccessible it's becoming. Of course, then if you mandate cash acceptance, that also impacts businesses and and it's not viable for many businesses now to do that because of the wider access problems so it's a really tricky one cash is really important but this this debate around cbdc's is is slightly different i mean even if you still have a a thriving cash economy it still poses really serious privacy and equality concerns so i think the two things have to be dealt with Uh, of course they're related Mm. but they need to be dealt with separately Mm. this is the point you know just before we start recording we're talking about the the problem with a lot of stuff is getting conflated this idea that you know it's all part of post-pandemic view to this kind of prism of conspiracy theories you know kind of 5g all this kind of uh, 15 minute cities the great reset all this kind of stuff and do you think that actually that the criticism of people who are critical of cbdc's people are, use the most extreme versions of that to not therefore tackle those kind of more serious technical privacy issues that you've been discussing On the one hand, I completely understand why lots of people are now concerned about government power grabs in a way that they haven't been before. And also, it's just sensible political analysis to look at the CBDC plans and using, as we do with all types of political analysis, using what we know about the existing landscape and political history, how it's likely to play out. Mm. You don't just look at a consultation document and say, that's an ironclad promise that it's going to turn out exactly in this way. Of course, no one, you know, no, no one serious is going to do that. But if you start speculating and talking about the issue through the lens of speculation, for example, I'm paraphrasing, right? Some people would say a CBDC is going to be used to count your carbon emissions and limit what you're doing. Okay, then you're in the territory of theorizing and speculation. And if people call you a conspiracy theorist, that is going to be why, because you're in the territory of of theorising. However, to completely dismiss those concerns, I think would be elitist and wrong, because we've been through enormous political turmoil in the past three years. People saw what happened to the Canadian truckers, you know, how protesters in a time of political exceptionalism and an extraordinary grab at people's civil liberties were debanked for standing up for, for their liberties. I think people have very reasonable concerns about this and it's just helpful for everyone if we keep them informed concerns and not too speculative. Mm. Yeah, so Tom, before we, before we kind of wrap up then, where do you think we kind of are with this? Where is the government in terms of, I saw the EU talking about theirs is going to be a couple of years before they potentially introduce a digital euro. You know, how soon do you think the government will be able to 
implement this or get to a point where it gets to a vote amongst MPs and amongst Marcus's colleagues, you know, where, where do you think we are in the process of, the, of Bitcoin? I think it's a really interesting question because a peer told me uh, the other week that in the State of Union address in the European Union, the digital euro wasn't mentioned once, which is quite interesting because this has been a big project of Christine Lagarde. She's mentioned a fair few times that she really would like to push this through, mm. particularly, and it's been one of those that's been very popular, particularly with European politicians. Now, the consultation was meant to have finished many months ago, and the res we were expecting a response from the government within the summer. Now, I think the Treasury announced that there had been discussions that have begun between academics and experts last week so it's clearly an ongoing discussion but I think one of the things that I don't think either party has woken up to is that there's only maybe a handful of MPs within Parliament that are really discussing this particularly on both the Labour and the Tory sides of how this is going to kick off so I think that within government there's definitely some discussions. Marcus is, of course, one of them that has been speaking about this, has written to the Prime Minister to see the updates. The discussions have clearly begun between experts. People within the Treasury are clearly thinking about what the design's going to look like, how it's going to be issued, how it's going to be laid out, some of the potential issues around programmability. And therefore, I think when the debate manages to kick off, I think it will probably realistically start to get maybe into the next parliament because there is so much legislation that the government needs to get through before it starts thinking about CBDCs. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting to see what Labour, Labour might think of it if they're potentially going to be in, in power. Do you think that the, for the conversations you've had, do you think that the some of the criticisms of uh, CBDCs around the world, we saw this week the House Financial Services Committee in the American Congress passing a bill effectively blocking the creation of a central CBDC. Do you think that's perhaps spooked the Treasury on the Bank of England a little bit, or do you think they're going to keep sort of pushing ahead, do you think? I think that they would be right to think about uh, whether something's going to be adopted. There just isn't any point doing something that isn't an innovation, which, as I say, just, just is another version of di digital money like a bank account mm. that already exists. It, it doesn't progress anything. And, and if people have concerns, then they won't adopt it. So there's no point in that either. So it is worth thinking about it properly. My, the feedback I have from people who are on the inside of... Uh, the discussions ar around this in different parts of the world are that it isn't going to happen in the US. Yeah, They're just not going to progress it in the government there. In the EU, I understand they're sort of more interested in creating a payment system. I just think that we need to think um, about, yeah, what, what are we really trying to achieve here? What are we trying to achieve? As I say, if we could do it in a way that advances the cause of human freedom and, and innovation then that's one thing that we should look at and maybe there are roles for central banks to uh, play within that in the future but I honestly think that the current proposals the current sort of tech designs that are on the table they need more work. Mm. Last word to you then Silk you look at your crystal ball do you think that we are going to see the introduction of one in the UK and if so what are the kind of the key things that you and Big Brother Watch are looking to have implemented if, if it is to come through? I think we absolutely need to have an assurance people need to have the assurance that their privacy and frankly their power when it comes to money is going to be protected because this is about the power that an individual has in relation to the state in relation to banks and at the moment that assurance is just simply 
not there. People definitely care about this. There were 50,000 responses to the Bank of England consultation, despite it being a fairly rapid and underplayed thing that, as you say, politically isn't really being discussed at all. And the majority of those responses, I understand it, were negative, mm. perhaps in part to Big Brother Watch's nospycoin.co.uk <laughs> campaign. <laughs> Managed to get that in there, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to be we're going to be campaigning on this. this. This is really important. It's about the it's about the future of of the country and and the power that that people have, the financial freedom that they have uh, under any government. It's really important that we take a more innovative approach, not only to technology in general, but into digital rights so that we can innovate. And as you say, Marcus, make people more free rather than less. Yeah. It has to increase choice, not decrease it, right? It That's right, yeah. yeah. That's all we've got time for this week. You can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link on our homepage. Thanks to my brilliant guests, Marcus Fish and Silky Carlo, my colleague, Tom Scottson. And thanks all again for listening. Please subscribe wherever your podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. From next week, we're taking the rundown on the road to party conference. So if you're in Manchester for the Conservatives, come along to the recording on Tuesday at 10.15am in Exchange One, where we'll have the party chairman, Greg Hans. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown. <laughs>